Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Down the line, we have uh, Simon Brennan, who's a director at Deloitte. This week, we'll be looking at the new UK bank stress tests. We'll also be taking a look at Santander's new employment practices. And finally, a look at Credit Suisse as it prepares to raise capital and pay big bonuses. First, though, to that tale of the stress tests in the UK. Now, this is a feature of the banking landscape and has been ever since the financial crisis, really, all around the world. But Emma, the Bank of England has changed the rules here. It's it's doing ever tougher tests. What, what has it changed this time? Yes, yeah, so the Bank of England announced a few years ago that it would be introducing an exploratory exercise to accompany its regular annual stress tests. So 2017, later this year, will be the first time that the Bank of England is implementing this extra assessment of banks' resilience. This new test is different insofar as it will be assessing how robust banks' business models are in a counter-cyclical environment. So it will be testing their ability to hold up and remain profitable, viable business models against headwinds such as ongoing low interest rates and high costs. And I think part of the reasoning behind this, having spoken to a number of advisors, is a bit of an information gathering exercise for the Bank of England insofar as they can determine where future risks may lie within the financial system. So, for example, if a number of banks state that they might have to push into higher margin lending in order to maintain profitability... The Bank of England can then keep an eye on this sector where banks are piling into. So this new exercise will accompany for the first time their regular annual stress tests, which assess banks' ability to withstand cyclical scenarios that involve um, adverse situations such as a slump in house prices in the UK. And from this domestic perspective, the Bank of England is keeping some of the parameters the same. So it assumes that unemployment could rise to about 9%. This is the same as the previous year. It has eased off on its commercial real estate scenario insofar as it assumes that um, prices won't fall as much in that model. But it's increased its global risk in the view that global GDP might contract much more than the previous year's estimates um, and also that China's GDP will also contract more based on its large debt. Okay, well, let me bring in Simon Brennan from Deloitte at this point. Simon, thanks very much for joining us. What do you make of the new enhanced UK stress tests? Are these going to be onerous for the banks or is it a very sensible measure? Well, I think it's important to think about there have been two very distinct exercises here, although they're both core stress tests. 
we've got the annual cyclical scenario, which we're now building on foundations over the past two or three years, uh, and have got an exercise that, at least in its in terms of its format and structure, is quite mature. And the Bank of England has talked about now maintaining that level of resilience within the system. What really changes this year is the exploratory scenario. And although it's described as a stress test, it's very different in nature. So the bank is going to be focused not on the result per se, although it will be interested in how profitable the banks are, but in how well the banks can take the information and embed within it their strategy, the discussions they're having themselves about how their business evolves, and also factor in the different regulatory requirements that are still being introduced over the next few years. So the exploratory scenario is challenging, but not in terms of financial resilience, but just really the sheer effort that's going to be required to get it done. So is it more of a qualitative test and a more collaborative in a way, rather than a kind of confrontational numbers-based approach? I think that's certainly the way that the Bank of England is setting out. They're keen to use it as a as a tool, really, to develop their own understanding, uh, as Emma has said, but also their dialogue with banks about strategy. It's quite hard for supervisors to see inside the bank in exactly the way they need to to ask the, the pertinent questions. And uh, for me, the exploratory scenario is, is, a, is a tool, really, to just start to give them that insight and the, the, the locus for the conversation about where the strategy is going. So definitely a focus on the qualitative and, and also an emphasis on there being an iterative dialogue between supervisors and banks in a way that's very different to the annual scenario. Uh, let me just bring Laura Noonan in here for a, for a final word, maybe to contextualise this in the global uh, environment. So the US is often held up as the kind of model of stress testing that the Europeans have followed post-crisis. How does this new innovation fit into that broader? I think this would certainly bring the UK model closer to the US. In the US, there has long been a big focus on the qualitative outcome of the stress test. And that is basically the Fed is as interested in trying to understand how the banks view risk, to understand how they actually manage various exposures, how they actually plan for their business through the cycle as they are in the financial resources. And certainly it has been the qualitative part where the banks have actually struggled. And there's two aspects to it. One is, as we heard there from Simon, the idea of the regulator having a better insight into how the bank actually thinks about these things. The other aspect is actually getting banks to think about these things. There are some banks who wouldn't have actually considered scenarios in this way. And when you talk to some banks in the US, they actually find that aspects of this while they are a pain to do they have been helpful from an internal risk management perspective because they make them engage with issues and then that can lead to them having a better way of managing risk having a better way to plan for their future so certainly to see the UK moving in this way you have to think it should lead to enhanced risk management right across banks here now in terms of what the eurozone has done the eurozone so far hasn't incorporated this kind of thing into the actual stress test, but they do have an ongoing supervisory dialogue between the ECB and the various large eurozone banks, which does cover off some of these. It just isn't done in this kind of an exercise. Let me go to Simon for a final word on this. Would you agree with Laura's assessment about the UK coming into line with the US? And if so, what does that mean for the banks? Does it bring more work for people like you or is it a real headache for the banks? So I think Laura is absolutely right and actually I might even go further and say that specifically on the the exploratory scenario that the bank is is now a a trailblazer because it's moving much deeper into this understanding of business strategy through the stress test 
uh, and Daniel Newey, who heads up the ECB single supervisory mechanism, actually made comments last week around the need to understand banks' ability to earn the cost of capital in the long run. So very similar to what the Bank of England said yesterday. This is going to be hard for banks to implement. I think what's important is that really this exercise brings together capabilities they already have. I think the challenge is, is will be in integrating them and being able to deliver to the supervisor's kind of timeline and conversation. It's really in the post-re-regulation environment, if, if we can call that already, it's, it's about bringing together the different things that banks have invested in but haven't necessarily joined up and, and refined yet. I love that. That's a new one, the post-re-regulation environment. Thank you very much, Simon Brennan from Deloitte. Let's move on to our second topic. And Emma, you've been taking a look at an interesting story involving Santander. Not much to do with banking per se, but it's to do with the employment structures that Santander in the UK has put in place. We all know about zero-hours contracts. Santander's come up with a one-hour contract. What's that all about? That's correct. So the FT revealed earlier this week that Santander is understandably one of the only companies in the UK, uh, no other employment lawyers have seen this, to um, be offering this one-hour contract whereby workers are able to um, be guaranteed at least one hour of work each month and up to 12 hours, therefore, in a year to work at the bank. The idea being that Santander can rather flexibly employ these people to provide advice services within branches and essentially um, help to cover full-time staff when they're off within their branch network. And this hasn't been done before. I suppose it's a surprising thing that it hasn't been done before because I guess branches, like any kind of environment where you have a shop front or whatever, can do with very flexible staff. Is it likely to catch on, do you think? It could, although the revelation in the Financial Times earlier this week sparked some controversy. The issue was raised by certain MPs, in fact, to highlight the issue that this is unfair on workers insofar as they're subjected to um, uh, irregular income streams and they don't have that surety. Santander emphasised that they have support from its union in regards to this type of contract and that actually it does offer full employment rights for staff. This comes at a time when all of the UK's largest banks are attempting to slash costs in the record low interest rate environment as margins are squeezed. And as part of this, they're all closing their branches across the country. In fact, I think about a thousand have been closed over the past two years alone, and that's just by the big four. So a lot of the banks now have lost staff as a result and are looking at ways to um, bring in essentially lower cost staff cover. Santander UK often uses their British operation as a kind of test bed for uh, how they operate group-wide. Uh, I know the Santander 123 account here has been rolled out elsewhere. Interesting to see whether this idea gets rolled out elsewhere. Um, I just think politically it will be very difficult for any of the large UK banks to actually follow suit. I mean, yes, it is within the letter of the law against zero-hours contract. It's clearly flying in the face of the spirit of the law. I think that for a large bank, especially, say, one that is um, currently state-owned, like, say, RBS, it would be very, very difficult for them to do anything like this and very unpopular and very stupid, I think. It's pretty bold for banks which are uh, struggling reputationally to be doing this kind of thing, I suppose. We'll monitor it carefully. Let's move on now to our final topic of the day. So, Laura, uh, Credit Suisse in the news for a few things lately. An interesting story that you wrote on Monday was around a uh, a bonus pool, a kind of special kind of bonus pool, 
250 million Swiss francs, I think it was. What was that all about? So basically, Credit Suisse, the previous year, they had cut group wide bonuses by 36%. This proved very unpopular with their staff at large, and particularly with some of their best staff. They said they had experienced serious issues in retaining staff in the first quarter of the year. Therefore, to keep the best people in place, they decided they were going to create a special bonus pot for them to retain them. This was a 249 million franc pool, which would pay out over a period of years, part cash, part um, shares. And it was basically designed to stop those people from leaving the bank during the bank's difficult period, because the bank has going through a restructuring. It's a very challenging one. And in their annual report, the bank wrote that since they intended to grow certain businesses, they needed to keep good staff on board. And the only way to do that was to create this pot of money to pay to retain them. It's like a fighting fund, really. Whenever somebody gets an offer from a rival institution, they can dip into this fund to to up their bonus. Pretty much. I mean, I think it's quite a difficult thing across the bank because we're not clear on the exact numbers. But what we do know is there was 838 people in as part of a bigger pot, which in- included both these 250 million of bonuses and also sign on bonuses paid to people who joined. So we are talking about a relatively small number of people. And that is difficult in an environment where everyone has taken a big hit. When you see a relatively small number of people who are actually insulated from that, that can create its own tensions. If we look at the example of one of the other large European banks and Deutsche Bank which has done something similar albeit in a much more upfront way. Deutsche they cut their overall bonus pool by 80% this year and on, and at the same time as they announced that they announced a much bigger plan to retain people so they have five and a half thousand people in the pool there who are going to be part of this in their case it's a 1.1 billion pool to retain people so it's a much broader thing and I think that should make it easier just in terms of how the bank's overall staff view that I think it's definitely easier to do it amongst a larger breed of people whereas in the CS case you would probably have people trying to guess who's in it who's out of it and that can lead to a divided workforce. A quick final word on the other big Credit Suisse story that's rumbling on and has been rumbling on for weeks now around capital. There's an expectation, I think, that Credit Suisse will come out with a another capital raising plan. We don't know exactly how much or whether it's definitely going to happen, but feels like it could be around, what, three or four uh, billion Swiss francs? Yeah, so um, Credit Suisse's shares took another fall last Friday when there was a story out on the Newswire saying that the bank was looking at raising three billion in capital, but I talked to advisors about raising as much as five. Now, Credit Suisse has said publicly it needs between two to four initially and then they said that the overall range of that had actually narrowed so we expect them to need 2.5 to 3.5 something in the range there. Now in terms of how they're going to actually do it Credit Suisse did publish the agenda for their AGM recently and there isn't anything on that which would ask for permission to issue new shares and if they were going to go above a certain threshold they would actually need that so that gives us some indication of both the size and and of the, the timing of any capital raise. The bank is also still at pains to point out that while they are no longer definitely going to list their Swiss bank to raise capital, they haven't actually ruled it out either and they are still preparing for an IPO of the Swiss Universal Bank. So at this stage, I think it's very unlikely that they will go down that route and it looks far more likely that, that they will simply sell shares, but certainly it is still open to them. Yes, this kind of group capital raising is seen as the, the alternative to the, the- a local Swiss listing of a, of, a, of a small minority stake. We'll see how that pans out. Maybe we'll have an answer by next week. But for this week, that's it. All that's left for me to do is to thank Emma and Laura here in the studio, our guest Simon Brennan from Deloitte, and thank you for listening. Remember, you keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. 
Banking Weekly was produced by Martin Staber. Until next week, goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.